Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 49 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on Thursday the 28th of February 2019. It's been so mild and sunny this week, it feels like spring. I'm not fooled though, I'm sure the Scottish climate has a few surprises up its sleeve. My guest today is Kate Harrison. I was so excited to speak to Kate. Not only has she sold over a million books and has been writing and publishing for over 15 years, but her How to Get Published blog was one I read when I was trying to find the secret to finishing my first novel and getting it published. So it was really exciting on a personal level uh, to speak to her as a fellow author. These things never get old for me and they just make me so grateful and excited that this is my job. As well as writing brilliant novels, Kate is a writing coach. More unusually in the author world, she loves writing blurbs and pitches, sometimes called elevator pitches, and she puts this down partly at least to her previous career working in television. In fact, she says that writing pitches is her superpower. Kate shares her knowledge and her enthusiasm on this subject in her online course, Plan, Pitch and Sell Your Book. The course covers much more than writing a compelling pitch though, and I will let Kate explain. She says that in seven steps, you'll learn how to attract an audience and overcome rejection by identifying what is unique and irresistible about your work. It'll help you to hone your story or concept without losing the excitement. Now I must say, I'm about halfway through this course at the moment, and I think it is excellent. The course is very reasonably priced. I believe it's only £99, um, but Kate has very generously offered a special 50% discount for Worried Writer listeners. Thank you so much, Kate. So you can find the course on Teachable. Uh, The web address is writeyourbestseller.teachable.com. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. And if you like the look of it and you want to give it a go, then when you get to the checkout, use the special discount code, which is WORRIED, W-O-R-R-I-E-D, and then you will get 50% off the course price. Thanks again to Kate Harrison for that. Speaking of thanks, I want to give a shout out to everyone supporting me on Patreon. And of course, a shout out to new patrons. It means so much to me that you are willing to support the show in this way. Huge thanks to new patrons, World Anvil, Terry Thomas, Dominique Simpson, and Lucinda Han. Thank you. If you want to join our patron community and get the exclusive audio extra that comes out every month in the middle of the month, then you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash worried writer. And that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. In my writing news this month, I've been super busy rewriting the draft of the second Crow Investigations book, as well as attending to some marketing tasks, like sorting out my email responder sequence. 
And that's the thing you get when you sign up for my author newsletter. And up until now, it's just been a sort of single welcome email. Um, but I'm following best practice advice. Um, in particular, a book by Tammy Lebrecht which is called uh, Newsletter Ninja, which has been doing the rounds in the uh, author community. Um, I think she was on the Creative Pen podcast. I think that's where I first heard about her. She's also been on the self-publishing show with Mark Dawson and James Blatch. Working on the emails has brought up a lot of resistance and self-doubt, and it's reminded me that I still have a lot of mindset work to do on this topic. Even though someone has given me their address and asked to hear from me, I still feel like I don't want to bother them and I'm worried about being annoying or boring or for sending out an email with a mistake in it. Oh, the horror. And I've already done that, obviously, um, in my newsletter. And I was mortified. I am so much better, I think, about the concept of promoting my work the idea that I am not bothering people, that it's okay to talk about my books if invited to do so. But then I come to a topic like this, I come to a task like this, and I procrastinate on it and feel rubbish and realise that I'm putting off doing it and that I'm feeling quite a lot of anxiety around it. And it makes me realise that this is still obviously an area I need to work on. So I'm working on a blog post for the Worried Writer site on the topic of mindset around marketing and promotion, but I might give patrons a sneak peek and talk about it a wee bit in the next Patron Extra, as it might help me to clarify my thoughts, and hopefully it will be useful for you as well. If you're a patron or you're thinking of becoming one and that's of interest to you, do let me know, or if you have got any specific questions or concerns around the topic of promotion and marketing. Um, I think most authors that I know tend to just say they just don't want to do it at all. So I think it is quite a common problem. Something which always helps my self-doubt though is you lovely people. Thank you so much for listening and for getting in touch via email or on social media. Thank you too for sharing and recommending the podcast. I really appreciate it. Before we get to the interview section, I just want to give a shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter. Amy Horton tweeted about last month's episode with Kerry Barrett. She said, my fave podcast with one of my fave people. What's not to like? Thank you, Amy. Pauline Wiles and Leah Middleton or Leah Middleton. Thank you for sharing and recommending the show. Dan Bishop, who's at Dan Bishop Books, said, I have to say, your podcast is so inspirational. It's really given me a boost and filled me with the self-confidence I needed. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm so glad. And finally, to the lovely Ray Cowie, who is at Ray underscore Cowie, who mentioned the worried writer in her blog post about her writing goals for this year. Thank you, Ray. And now, onto the interview section of the show. Kate Harrison has written contemporary women's fiction, the YA Soul Beach trilogy, and has recently moved into adult thrillers with the dark and twisty The Secrets You Hide, under a new pen name, Kate Helm. She has also got a successful non-fiction brand, with a range of diet and lifestyle books based on the 5-2 to two intermittent fasting method. 
and regularly teaches other writers through courses, events, and her consultancy service. Welcome to the show, Kate, and thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. We've been talking about doing this for actual years, I think. So it's great <laughs> to actually be part of it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time, and I'm so glad that we finally managed to connect. Um, I was hoping that we could start by talking about The Secrets You Hide and what sort of prompted your move from women's fiction to psychological thriller? It's always all about the idea for me. So I am quite a troublesome author in some ways for publishers and that's because I just get excited by different things. And I have, I would say, quite a short attention span. So an idea either grips me or it doesn't. And once it's gripped me, I have to do it. And with this particular one, I've been working on my nonfiction for quite a while. And I was working out at the gym, which is something that you have to do, I think, if you're a sedentary writer. And the way that I make those things bearable is to listen to podcasts. And I was listening to a podcast called Criminal, and they were interviewing a couple of American courtroom sketch artists. Now, back in my dim and distant past, I worked as a TV and a newspaper reporter. And one of the things I used to do right earliest on in my career was to be a courtroom reporter. And I remember with some of the bigger cases, there would be a sketch artist there, and I never really got involved in that. And suddenly there I was, kind of a number of years later, doing it on the cross trainer and thinking, you know what, that is fascinating. What would it be like day in, day out, not only to be in courtroom with these, well, potential psychopaths, killers, a lot of them, but to actually have to look into their eyes and to try to capture their likeness. And also something about that moment in court in a few sketches and I was also aware that there are certain really strict rules and regulations that the courtroom artists have to follow in that for example a lot of people don't know they're not allowed to make a single sketch mark in court they have to do it through pen portraits and then walk out of the court and then try and use only the words that they've written down about that person to capture the likeness of that person and the moment and that started a whole series of really interesting questions for me and the character of my courtroom artist and what might motivate her and, and what's in her past started to come from there. And that was the story. It clearly wasn't women's fiction. Although interestingly, I think there is a real crossover, certainly as in readership between readers of contemporary women's fiction and readers of what is currently called psychological thrillers. No, I absolutely agree. Well, that is fascinating. I'm not at all surprised that that gripped you. Um, and I love the fact that you are led by ideas and your sort of passion for things. Um, I was, I remember when I first heard about this book coming out, I was slightly surprised in some ways that you were going to have a pen name because from the outside, I thought, well, you've got such a solid fan base, you know, many, many successful women's fiction books. How did you feel about having a pen name? I think that because I've done a lot of things, again, a little bit of that butterfly mind going from thing to thing, from flower to flower, whichever one is the most dazzling at that particular time. I think because of that, there was a worry that there might be some confusion if people were looking at Kate Harrison. So if you put me into Amazon or anything else, you're going to get YA books, you're going to get the women's fiction that I still love writing, but you're also going to get this whole tranche of really successful 5.2 and other 
kind of diet and health books. And um, I've even co-written a, a book about depression, which is something that I have suffered from with a, a fellow writer down here in Brighton. And so the thought was that we would go for a new pen name, but not a secret one. So some people are very much attempting in the secrets you hide kind of way to actually hide who they are and, and have people guess. And we weren't doing that. So I stuck to Kate. Uh, and then I actually chose my pen name because I've lived down in Brighton now for seven years. I was looking for a good name that, that kind of matched up with Kate. And the old name, the ancient name for Brighton is Bright Helmstone. So I tried Kate Bright. That sounds a bit kind of uplity. I tried <laughs> Kate Stone, which actually is a brilliant name, I think, for a detective. And I ended up with Helm. So, and, and I'm being really open about it. So I am hoping to tell people who've enjoyed my women's fiction if this is something you fancy, then you might like to try it. And actually, a lot of people have. And um, when I look at reviews on the NetGalley site, which is the thing that publishers use before they go to publication to get reviewers from bloggers and so on, several of them have mentioned that they've read my women's fiction. And I think that there is a crossover for my writing as well as in the audience in that I am talking about it's quite emotional. The characters, I hope, are, are well developed and it's not a procedural. It's very much about what's happened to people in their past, how they're living with the present, how they come to terms with the stuff that's happened to them as young people. And that's really the same sort of themes as were in my women's fiction. Perhaps it's mostly a difference of tone. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really smart because, as you say, it's, it's quite sensible from the branding point of view to make it very clear um, that this is a slightly different tone of book. Um, but because it's not secret, it means that you don't have to double up all your social media and, you know, you haven't doubled your workload there and you're still you. <laughs> so right. that makes a lot of sense. And my, yeah. my Twitter, of course, and my Instagram are at Kate Wright's Books. So by keeping my first name, that's actually quite handy. Although I have to say, it's a bit weird being a debut because, of course, you then haven't got the natural Amazon algorithms, say, that mm. are putting things together. And you do feel vulnerable. So on the one hand, not having my real name distances me a little bit from it. But you still do feel, oh, my goodness, I hope people find this book. Mm, it's tough though isn't it I think I, well I don't know how you feel obviously you've been doing this uh, longer than I have and very successfully um but I'm always a wreck with publication so far I'm always a complete nervous wreck and feel exposed and terrified um I don't know how you find it now are you just an old hand so no no I'm not <laughs> I mean I think it depends on the book so when I was writing my non-fiction I it's much simpler, I think, with nonfiction. And I'm really interested in this concept of, of what an audience get at, gets out of a book. Because in nonfiction, with my diet books or with my general health books, people are looking for a specific answer to a question that they're typing into Amazon or the internet. How do I lose weight or how do I improve my gut health or whatever it is? And you are, as an author, able to really deliver that very, very closely. With fiction, it's so much more nebulous and you are trying to deliver an experience to somebody. And so when it then comes to coming up to publication day, you are nervous because it's much harder to direct that experience to a person. Partly it's about title, partly it's about cover, partly it's about keywords and these sort of things. But it's it's much more hit and miss, I find. And so with the nonfiction, I was not as worried, partly because right from the very first one, it did really well. And that builds 
Whereas with the fiction, it is also more personal. Although I did write about my personal dieting experience in my two books, much to my boyfriend's dislike. He was like, why are you talking about your thighs rubbing together because you feel overweight or your bra kind of being a bit too tight? It's like, you know, that is sort of who I am. I can't help it. I just, I am a bit of a, a teller. I can't help kind of oversharing, I think. <laughs> I don't think that's oversharing. I think I think it's really important to um, be open about things. And I think people get so much value from it and they really connect with you then. So I think it's a good thing. <laughs> and um, so we were talking just before we started recording about, I was telling you, I've seen my fangirl, about how I used to read your, uh, your diary of trying to be a published writer. Um, when I was trying to be a published writer and how I speaking of sharing, how I got a great deal of solace from it and inspiration. Um, But that is a wee while ago now. So you've been writing and publishing successfully for over 15 years, shall we say? It is is that now, 2019. So my first book actually came out in 2003. Brilliant. Well, congratulations. And (laughs) now I'm going to pick your brains. So um, things have changed a lot in publishing over that time, I would say. And how have you found that? Has it affected you? Have you changed your approach or your attitude to it in any way? It's such a huge question because you're right, so much has changed. When I, so I've always, think I've always been a bit of an early adopter of technology and of new stuff because I like the shiny new things. And um, so when I started off, I knew that my first book when it came out really had quite a low advance. It was certainly nowhere near enough for me to be able to give up the day job, which at that time was actually in television. So it was still a creative area and it was very much dealing with ideas and pitching new book, new programme ideas actually to the TV channels. And then I came into publishing, which at the time to me was both a dream, but it felt incredibly old fashioned. So there was no real concept of who your readers might be. Maybe if you were in the top five of readers, they might do the odd bit of research, but that was it. And it was all about hunches. And those hunches were really good. And I had, you know, the people that I worked with, my first publisher were adorable and fantastic and talented and have gone on to do even better things. But the way that publishing was set up structurally was felt very stuck in the past. And I was quite radical. Loads of authors who were being published at that time wouldn't have considered having a website even. And I knew that I would spend some of my first chunk of money, which was a very small chunk of money, on getting a website built. And I also started a blog um, with another writer who I just got to know by email where we would um, enter into this novel race. (laughs) So we started doing novel racing against each other. That is the writer Lucy Diamond, whose real name is Sue Mungridian. And she was writing her second women's fiction novel, and she's gone on to be very deservedly stratospheric in her writing. And so we started doing that sort of thing. And that early communication between writers, would-be writers and readers was great for me. And I think that that has followed. What's happened from that as well, though, is that the introduction of Kindle, um, which is something I benefited from massively, uh, self-publishing the first five two book, has meant that the field has is massive the, there are so many titles out there so it is much harder now to stand out because in 2003 the publishers were the gatekeepers so if you got a deal you were out there and the books were in the shops and they might not have been in all the shops but you had a good chance if you were there that you at least would make um, some sales and I was lucky I got 
shortlisted or, or put on the list for the WH Smith Fresh Talent, which meant my books were in all the Smiths, and it did well, and my career went on to grow from there. I think that were I starting in fiction today, I would be really in two minds about whether to be self-publishing via Kindle or whether to be publishing with a publisher. Now, for me, um, publishing the Kate Helm brand now, it's really great to be with a publisher who is able to get into shops and to help build that brand. For the Kate Harrison books, I'm still not sure if I'm going to go back to writing women's fiction. And in that case, whether I will publish with a publisher or on my own, because obviously, as you say, that brand is already quite established. And there is a part of me that likes the idea of doing having some control over that marketing. When we did the 5-2 stuff originally, it was great to be able to, I did it with my agent and we didn't have a publisher at that moment for the books. And we could just say, right, we're going to lower the, lower the price because it's that time, or we're going to mess about with the cover, or we're going to change the blurb. Obviously with a publisher, there's then that, that stage in, in the middle. So I think it's a great time, but people will always say, well, we should have been there in 2012. And uh, yeah, we should have been, but you know, give it a go now. I think it's a, a good time, but it's a more complicated time. And in some ways a more stressful time because you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. Comparatonitis is, is quite a dangerous thing. And you know, they also say, don't they, it's the thief of joy comparison. And I think you have to be quite careful not just about your business decisions but about your mental state to protect yourself a little bit from that very long answer to a very wide question it was a very wide question that was an excellent answer um i'm i'm with you i do think it's a a brilliant time and the opportunities are fantastic um but yes as you say there are downsides um comparisonitis absolutely is there anything that you do to protect yourself from that do you um do you notice in yourself when you're feeling a wee bit fragile and you'll step away from maybe social media i try to do that it is quite difficult because it is addictive we know that it gives you that dopamine hit the same that you get with an email the same that ultimately you get with drugs or alcohol or sugar so it's no surprise that we've ended up with social media being so addictive I do try and pull myself away I started running in the summer and that can help as well or it's it's one step up from shuffling really but (laughs) I do do that I've started to do park run I have this year on Part of my goal setting, I know you and I are massive goal setters, and one of mine here is to really increase the number of books that I read, physical books, because, again, it's far less distracting. And I put in a few things in December to try out whether that would work. And my reading, I think I managed to read one book in November, and I read 10 in December. So I have, obviously, that's one of the things I'm really trying to focus on, because I think most authors come at storytelling and writing from having been hugely enthusiastic readers and in this environment it's very hard to get back the concentration span but I have found since I started reading again in a concentrated way that it helps me in all sorts of other ways. Mm, That's a really good tip and uh, while we're on the sort of nitty-gritty of process um, do you have a sort of typical Uh, writing day do you keep business hours Monday to Friday or do you just you know work all the time and do you aim for a word count you know that kind of thing what's your routine I do aim for a word count Mm -hmm. uh, because I I realized so I wrote 
part-time for the first four years and then I switched to writing full-time in 2007 and I imagined to myself that I would get loads more written and actually uh, it's not quite like that you just find other ways to get distracted and so the word count in a way when you're at home on your own and you're not getting feedback on a book because a book could take you six months to write or three months or a year and it's not a healthy thing to be sharing all your work all the time and no agent or publisher is going to want to read a work in progress in that way anyway you have no sense of validation you have no idea from one day to the next whether you are achieving something that's good or bad so the only way to measure that in some senses the progress is via word count so i will tend to do that and i will try to set myself a lowish goal and then exceed it because that's i'm a bit of a girly swat i like the idea of exceeding my target although having said that i did do nano for the first time in november successfully and got that done so that was a tighter word count um i tend to try to write really quite quickly because as i was saying i like the bright shiny things and if an idea is knocking around in my brain or on my laptop for too long, then it becomes quite stale to me. So writing quickly and getting something down fast and then going back to edit it, I have found to be the best way of working for me, although it does vary from book to book. So because The Secrets You Hide was very much a new way of writing and a new genre for me that took me a really long time and I was doing it alongside the diet books and while I was doing that I you know I kept getting sidetracked and I wasn't clear on things it was a bit of a nightmare in that people who read it um, may like to speculate when they finish on the fact that I actually had two previous uh, villains in it before two different people who are still in the book were the villain and then I ended up <laughs> rewriting it and getting another villain having said that with my second book in the deal with um, with Bonnie Zaffa I have I wrote that in about four months and I'm currently editing that at the moment and that felt like a much clearer process the premise was perhaps much clearer and I'm editing it and wrestling with it a bit at the moment and hating it but I know that it's it was a much more fully formed book so a bit like children or pets or people they're never exactly the same Mm. And and do you plan or do you just dive into a first draft? I have always planned a bit. Uh-huh. And I have a whole shelf full of how to write books, which <laughs> is bad considering I've now written, I don't know, 18 or 19 books. But I always look for the quick fix. So I'm a great one for those books of, you know, the hero's journey and all those kind of things, even though they don't mean an awful lot to me in, in actual fact. A lot of them don't make a lot of sense to me. But I still, I like to try that. I like to think, oh, this could be the time. And it's also almost like a little bit of a confidence trick for me to think, okay, if I follow this method, it'll be all right this time. Because although you have written lots, I don't know if you find this, but although I've written a lot now, I still have the imposter syndrome. I still get the doubts at the you know, the saggy middle or towards the end or when it comes to rereading, I have no concept of whether a book is good or bad until I've had a bit of distance. And so those gadgets or even I noticed in your goals, you've been looking at dictation, any of those things, I like to think, oh, this could be the, the holy grail of getting <laughs> of making it easy this time. And it never quite works. <laughs> no, I'm nodding away here. Um, also, if you 
when you do get stuck, I, I do the same. I go to my sort of writing craft books and try and bolster myself or get a new idea or, or something. Um, and sometimes I'll go for a walk. Um, are there other things that you do when you're stuck or, or do you sometimes just go, okay, I'm not getting my words done today? I think that I do allow myself some word slippage, I suppose you mm-hmm. could call it. Um, I realise that I have to be kind of in a book. And so that's why, although I do keep weekends and try and ring fence them to some extent, I will also uh, kind of try and write a bit less at the weekends, but even if it's two or 300 words. And this, I think, would be a tip for for me, for any writer starting off, that even if you are only able in your day job and with your other commitments to manage, say, 100 words a day, okay, that sounds slow. But I think what it does is it keeps it in your subconscious And your brain is very smart and functions at all these different levels. And while you're going about your everyday work or walking or all of those things, it might be problem solving for you. For me, it's often if I'm stuck, I will very consciously try and change my environment. So I might decide to go and write in a cafe when I normally work at home, or I might get out the pen and paper and draw some squiggly lines when somehow the laptop has become part of the problem it might even be something as simple as changing the font on word because suddenly it looks a bit different and the other things that I recommend to other writers getting stuck are things like jumping forward if you feel that you're treading water with a scene jump forward to a scene that you're really dying to write or the ending or something like that because it really doesn't matter I've learned also from writing for quite some time now that Editing is where a lot of the real writing gets done. It's almost like the first draft is you getting to know the characters and you getting to know the story. Some writers, I know Jill Mansell is one of these amazing storytellers that can write a first draft and she changes very, very little. For me, it's rarely like that. There might be the essence of something that comes out, but I do know that when I get to the end of a book and then start again, suddenly the characters are so much clearer than they were when I wrote that first chapter months previously because I know the people better I know what it was perhaps I was trying to say in the book and by diving in that's something I do I I do planning so with a crime book especially I might do a couple of weeks of of planning and then I'll get in and things will come to me through the writing that's one of the fun bits that something you think oh yes that was there and I can make that I've been trying to up creep my current draft and, you know, because uh, it's fine, it's all there, but it needs to be much more of a, a growing sense of menace. And those are the fun bits to put in. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Once I've got a messy draft, then I can layer into it and I can work on it. Um, but yeah, sometimes getting that first bit down is just hard. <laughs> um, we've, we've sort of started chatting there about a sort of the writing process. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about knowing that you have the shiny things syndrome and you run this um non-fiction side you do consultancy you've got a, a new course I believe as well how do you balance um your time and your headspace so that you don't get overwhelmed and you still get everything done because I want to know how <laughs> I don't think I have the whole answer and a bit like the looking for the magic holy grail solution for writing a novel I'm I'm relying on you Kate I'm relying on you I I do the the one thing so I do try lots of different uh tricks the one thing I have used for quite a number of years now is that whole Pomodoro technique thing 
of, uh, they call it Pomodoro. I'm sure your listeners will have heard of it, but if not, you have a kitchen timer and it's the guy who first suggested this method, just have one of those tomato-shaped kitchen timers and you set the alarm, or in my case, I have a little app on my computer for 25 minutes with a five-minute break afterwards. And the idea is that you focus completely on what you're supposed to be doing for that 25 minutes. And so I will turn off the Wi-Fi and I will get that done and I'll have a list of the number of little slots, pomodoros, little 25-minute slots I'm going to try and get done and what I'm going to devote myself to in that day. I've learned that scheduling it too much, so I won't have 15 of those because I'll just end up feeling a bit ring-fenced. But I might, again, wanting to exceed expectations, set perhaps five or six for a day. So that, in theory, would only be about three hours' work. And that might be four hours in the morning devoted to editing this book, for example, at the moment, and then two sets of uh, 30 minutes to writing some blog posts, thinking about uh, marketing for the next book, thinking about marketing for the new course, um, twiddling around at the edges of, of getting some other ideas and social media. I do, especially after a period of not doing focus work, you know, we've, we're in the post festivity season now, and obviously that's quite disruptive. I do even find that 25 minutes on a novel to start with is quite hard work. We're just so addicted now to getting distracted by things around us. And for me, I will have to kind of give myself a bit of a talking to with that. I'll have to say, look, you know, if you can't manage to write for 15 minutes without checking your email, you, you're a bit naughty, really, aren't you? You're a little bit of a lost cause. So put your phone away. You know, make sure that's out of the way. Put that away, switched off. Uh, get the Wi-Fi off. Shut the door so that my partner can't come in. The only person who is allowed to interrupt is the dog because she can't really help it. And you know, kind of go for it, 25 minutes. And then it go, the alarm goes off and the idea is you have five minutes when you can have a loo break, stretch your legs, go and get some more water. Ideally not check emails because you just take yourself out of that world. Um, apart from that, I do try and prioritise. So I do sit down at the beginning of the year and think, right, okay, here's my deadline. I need to get my edits done on this book, for example, by February. I need to set some time aside for marketing and events in February because that's when the book's coming out. Uh, in the rest of the year, I want to think about what I want to do with my non-fiction, if I want to write some writing stuff, look at uh, where I am with mentoring. Uh, that's quite nice because that fits in and it uses that part of my brain that I really enjoy, helping writers to kind of get a handle on their books uh, without me having to write them. <laughs> so I, I kind of think it's a mixture of the things I want to do and also trying to create some fun for myself. No, that makes sense. And um, speaking of uh, the sort of helping other writers and, of course, you adding more things into your busy schedule with your course, um, I really want to talk about it because um, I think it's a wee bit different. Uh, the focus, is it called Pitch? It's. Um, I actually widened it from Pitch and Sell Your Book, which is what it was originally, to Plan, Pitch and Sell Your Book. Because uh-huh. actually the tools that I use are I use for planning and pitching. What I did do when I decided I'd like to do a course because I am addicted to courses. That's another one of my shiny things. I am an evening class addict. I love that September feeling of looking for new things. I've done online courses through FutureLearn and other uh, things, the masterclass classes that you can get online. I wanted to set one up, but I thought I just want not to be doing another how to write a book course 
because there's loads of those out there already and what is it that I do probably that's a bit different from what is out there already and what other writers do and I am not somebody to blow my own trumpet but my one superpower <laughs> seems to be to listen to somebody's idea or the book that they've written 100,000 words of and go okay that's what you want to put in your pitch and this is this is a list of similar titles and this is your hook or your elevator pitch you know the two sentence thing when you get into the lift with a movie producer which obviously happens to all of us all the time and it's just <laughs> something that I seem to have the knack for so all my writer friends ask me to do this and I I kind of wonder where that comes from and it does come partly from my journalism background I'm working in telly and doing the pitching to executives of new ideas but it's also, there's just something that I love about being able to encapsulate something and especially encapsulate that whole reader experience thing. Um, I think what I was saying before, we're becoming savvier at recognising that readers aren't a big amalgus mass of women's fiction readers on one hand and crime readers on another. And we all read according to our mood. And um, if there's one message I get across, it's that for a new writer is to identify what sort of mood and experience you're giving to somebody. And this was what the course was aiming to do. So it takes you through the pitching steps that I would suggest. There's seven different steps which start with the title because that's part of your hook. The hook or the shout line, the what would go on the book. You're looking at a story summary. Then you're looking at the sense of what the what the benefit is for the reader, what they're going to be taking away from the book, when, both in the process of reading it, but also when they shut the book, how are they going to feel? It's looking at competition, but looking at competition in a really constructive way to say, okay, what's been successful out there that I can take hold of and use as a way of proving either to readers, if I'm selling direct, or to publishers and agents, if I want to... Um, be more traditionally published to show that there's a market and an audience who want my book and then you're looking finally at things like your uh, your biography how to tweak um, what you've done and what your background is to suit the genre so I do that quite consciously with my Kate Helm stuff I'm talking about my court reporting background with my diet stuff I'm talking about how I used to be two stone heavier and feel really bad about myself those two would not if you swap those around it wouldn't work mm. and all those tools help you write a, a good pitch, but actually I do exactly the same thing at the start of the book as well. It's how I identified that the secrets you hide had to be marketed and sold in a different way from my women's fiction, because I thought this is going to make people feel creeped out. Um, they will hopefully feel uplifted at the end, but only in a sense of things being resolved rather than the more kind of... Um, heartwarming ending that perhaps some of my previous ones do and if I work the planning out it's something I always do before I write a word of a book I will actually write the pitch for a book that's not written yet and it will change as it goes along but I find it a really invaluable planning tool because then I can know where I'm heading and not end up in that situation which loads of new writers I've worked with have found themselves in, in that they want to, a traditional publishing deal. But when they go to a publisher or an agent, they're saying, I don't know how we can sell this. I don't know which bit of the Waterstones tables or which bit of the Smiths genre or your local bookshop um, shelf this is going to go on. Um, and I am not saying you have to write to market. But what I'm saying is that an awareness of that will help you avoid falling too heavily into that pitfall and will help you 
pitch and sell your book as a, a jumping off point from something that's existing. Not saying it's the same, but saying if you like this and you like that, the chances are you'll like this. Mm, no, that makes a lot of sense. And is this course um, online and is it something that people can just join at any time or is there a sort of onboarding time? It is, uh, it's an online course um, mm-hmm. available at any time. There is a Facebook group, though that's because people are doing it at different times, asynchronously, I think that's the word, isn't it? Then uh, they, we, we haven't got really a lot going on in the group and it's something you can work on. You could take a month to do it, two weeks. I mean, it's all manageable or you could take two years to do it. It doesn't really matter. So um, it's all available there. And I, I also do that. A lot of my mentoring students do that at a reduced rate because it, it helps them do as much of the work as they can on their own. And then I can come in and go, right, okay, that's great. But this could do with some work. So it's designed to kind of supplement the way that I work, but, it, you know, just give people the tools to do it themselves. Oh, fantastic. Well, it sounds like I need that course. So I will, uh, I'll make sure. I'll do your deal maybe. Yeah. Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, I will put the link in the show notes, but yeah, that sounds amazing. And it's definitely something that um, I and all of my writer friends struggle with. (laughs) It's good fun. I just, I just think in the end, you know, we're all about the spark and it's a spark that makes you think, oh, that's the idea. There is nothing better for me about you but when you have that moment you think oh my goodness that that is a story and no one's quite approached it that way before often when you do your research you find somebody has but you know you you kind of with the courtroom artist nobody has done that before that is like I was like oh I've actually got that sorted um and what it is that what the pitching process is I think is doing the same but in in your potential audience and so it's about reconnecting with those exciting things and then identifying um, what it is that's that's cool and different and the big questions that mean you want to pick that book up right now. And I, I also love what you said about um, letting the reader know uh, what sort of emotional experience they're going to have or what somehow through your through your blurb or through your pitch. And I think that's I think that's really valuable. I hadn't, hadn't thought of it that way. If you think about a reader scorned, that is where you get the terrible reviews. And I would guarantee that your listeners, whether they're writers or readers, as a reader, if you pick up a book expecting it to be one thing, especially if you're buying the book, and you get a bit into it, and you realise that it's not what it was sold to you as at all, because you were looking for something happy and uplifting, and suddenly there's really disturbing stuff coming towards you, you do feel a kind of a visceral emotion there and I think that's behind a lot of the really critical Amazon reviews of any book is that people had an expectation based on the title and the blurb and it's almost like mis-selling you can't expect everybody to love your book but if you have a clear idea of what it is you're offering them you're much less likely to come up against that I think because people will know exactly what it is you can judge a book by its cover you should be able to in this world we make decisions on on a split second because we've got choices coming all over the place and again it's not about selling out it's not about copycatting it's just about being really clear from that title all the way to the last page I mean for example how many times have you read a book and halfway through it changes completely and then you feel uh, it's it's that experience you don't want people to feel that experience you want them to, to be in the mood for the book that you have, see the title, see the cover, 
read the first page all the way through to the end and think, wow, that was exactly what I wanted. Now I'm going to give that book or give a recommendation to all my friends who I think would like it. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, so I'm just, I'm very aware that I could talk to you all year probably, but <laughs> we should probably finish up. So um, what is it that you're working on at the moment or, or what's coming out next? So the book that will be out probably, it is already out as an ebook. is The Secrets You Hide. So that is coming out in paperback uh, in February in the UK and next year in Germany. And that's the Courtney Martis book. I'm working on my second thriller as Kate Helm, which is called The House Share, which is kind of millennial friends gone toxic. Uh, and it ends in murder and there's a lot of... Um, a lot of the kind of tropes that make life fun at the moment, like uh, kimchi and companion animals, roof terraces, and I'm having a ball with it. It's been great fun. And I'm also working on a, a, a top secret women's fiction project. As soon as I finish the edits on that, I'm going to be moving on to that, which is taking me back to my roots, but with a bit of a twist. Uh, it, it's actually trying to create a new genre. So I will, I'll have to let you know sometime if I, if I come up with that or, or if it falls flat. But I like the experimentation. Well, that sounds brilliant. And you'll definitely be able to pitch the new genre. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> I, I think the pitching might be might be the fun bit. <laughs> uh, said no other writer I've ever met, ever. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it really is. That's what, that's what makes me very different. Very special. <laughs> makes you special. So uh, where can listeners find out more about you and your books online? Well, I am... On the usual Twitter and Instagram at Kate Writes Books, and my website is kate-harrison.com. And there's everything on there. There's also links to the diet stuff and the links to my um, training and mentoring as well on the front page. You can just find it. There's a for writers section, um, which, like you, I used to trawl all of those before I was published. And yeah, they're great. It's, it's good because they're they're sort of evergreen, even if the industry changes. The that desire to tell stories and some of the ideas about how to get it out there, they stay the same. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It has been lovely to speak to you. You too, Sarah. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. For show notes and links, head to worriedwriter.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. See you next time.